we're going to look to our Lord together in prayer. Our fathers, we're coming before you. We're coming before you as people that need so desperately to keep our faith and focus upon Jesus as Lord and Savior. You are the sovereign God. You are righteous, you are good, and you are wise. You sent Jesus into this world to die in our place for our sins. And Father, we've got the opportunity now to be able to explore your word and how it relates to our lives in this fallen world. Now there's going to be incredible struggles, challenges, obstacles that each one of these services today has been or will be facing. And what we want, Father, is to take that strength that is found in your word and relate it to the weaknesses and the challenges and the difficulties of the lives around us. You know the needs. You know what keeps us awake at night. You know the struggles that we face. You're there. You're the God who equips us, the God who guides us, the God who directs us. We praise you. So, Father, now in these minutes you've given us to be together. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. Come here, Father, again to see Jesus and, and him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. While the eyes of the world were focused upon what was taking place in Berlin in 1989, fall of communism symbolized by the fall of the Berlin Wall, there was something taking place in Prague setting we know as the Czech Republic. Os Guinness tells us that night after night, crowds of more than a quarter of a million people packed the main square, mesmerized by the stirring address of the slim, boyish, mustachioed figure of then-dissident but later president, Vaclav Havel. Again and again, as the speakers painted the stark contrast between the revolutionaries and the communist regime, the quick-witted Czech crowd broke out into this chant. We are not like them. We are not like them. And what Guinness does at that point is that he distinguishes, he contrasts for us those that are what he calls the people of the truth and those who are not. Elevate that now to the area in which the Apostle John is writing. And what you will find the Apostle John doing now is distinguishing between those who are from God and those who are not from God. Not once, not twice, but six times. In fact, that phrase from God is used in the first six verses of chapter 4. So now in the spiritually confusing times in which you and I live, 
you and I are challenged then to be able to distinguish between what is true and what is false, what is aligned with God's will and what is not aligned with God's will. And the question now becomes, well, how do I go about in doing that? What God is about to do for you and for me now in these six verses of the fourth chapter of this book is to give us two what I'll call exam questions that better equip us to be able to distinguish what is from God and what is not from God in this fallen world. Now the first comes out of verse 1 down through verse 3, and we're going to put it like this, that number one, in matters of testing, in matters of testing, examine the confessions made here about God. Everybody's got a confession in this world to make, either pro-God or anti-God. Notice how this unfolds, and notice the word confess, confessions that emerges here. You see it? Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are, there it's italicized for you, from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world, and by this you know the Spirit of God. Here comes the confessions. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. We're going to begin to break this down now, think this through together, and see how it relates practically to the way in which you and I go about living our lives. And so we start now with the confessions made about God, and he opens up with this phrase, Beloved. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. In other words, he's saying to believers, there's times in which we're to be unbelievers. Do not believe every spirit. In fact, I'm always a little hesitant about Christians simply be called believers because everybody believes something. Some believe something which is true. Others believe something which is false. We need to expand that. Believe in who? Believe in what? And so now what he wants to do is to make certain that the people who love Jesus are not spiritually gullible in this fallen world. That you've got to be able to distinguish between that which is from God and that which is not from God. And so he attacks right away the tendency of thinking, well, all beliefs are equal with this statement, do not believe every spirit. Now, when he addresses this, then, he takes us back to something that Francis Schaeffer once wrote about, true spirituality. It was the book that he wished he had written first. I was standing in my upstairs, and I had pulled out the volume and just reflecting upon it, Recalling a time when we were making our way down a particular street in the extreme setting of the United States that stood out to us because occult matters were all around us. 
What stands out to this very day was how spiritually oriented the people were. Spirituality is not necessarily the same thing as Christianity. There is true spirituality, and there is false spirituality. Now the question becomes, and how do I distinguish between true spirituality and false spirituality? Beloved, he said, do not believe every spirit, but now he puts the onus on you and on me. But test the spirits. In order to test the spirits, you and I need to have some means of standardized testing. The step one exams. It's a standardized test, about nine hours in length. It's meant to evaluate and to determine the criteria by which an individual is able to perform the medical matters at hand. Testing. I looked up this past week uh, some answers to some tests that were given in elementary school across the nation. Teachers wrote in some of their favorites. This one. Bob has 36 candy bars. Elementary school. Bob has 36 candy bars. He eats 29. What does he now have? Answer? Diabetes. (laughs) Another one. Fresh out of a history test. What ended in 1896? Answer, 1895. Maria, go up to the map up front. Where is North America? Here it is says Maria. Correct. Now class, who discovered America? And in unison they shout out, Maria! (laughs) Tess. Now, it's not enough for you and for me to develop our tests. What we've got to bear in mind is that the scriptures are your standardization by which you test. All scriptures inspired by God. God breathed, as the Apostle Paul would have put it. And so now what we need is a way to standardize testing in a confusing world in which we live. You've got to know the scriptures. We've got to work them through. This has tremendous implications for a person who's single, married, family, children, whatever. Beloved, do not believe. Don't get gullible. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. Notice that that's plural. To see whether they are from God. And then adds this. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. 
Now, what might have been percolating in the Apostle John's mind at that point as he has just written this was an experience that he himself had to endure that you and I find in Acts chapter 8. Because in that setting being described, the setting of Samaria, the physician Luke tells us that there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city. And it amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God. That is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But then Philip appeared on the scene, and he began leading people to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Luke the physician tells us in the 18th verse that Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the hands of the apostles. So he offered them money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. You and I, then, have got to be able to use the standardized approach to be able to determine what is from God, what is not from God, and how do you do that in a pluralistic culture such as ours? And I thought about that in these past days when something very distinctive was occurring in a Senate subcommittee where a man was being evaluated for the position of deputy director of the Office of Management and Budget. To understand the background of what was occurring, last year a controversy erupted when a political science professor at Wheaton College decided to wear some Islamic garb during heaven in solidarity with Muslims. Wheaton is a Christian college. On Facebook, the professor had written, I stand in religious solidarity with Muslims because they, like me, a Christian, are people of the book. And as Pope Francis stated last week, we worship the same God. Well, Wheaton alum Russell Vaught responded. Responded in an article that was produced on the website Resurgent. He pushed back against what Hawkins had stated and by an evangelical, interestingly enough, theologian who had stated, having a deficiency, a deficient theology of God, does not mean you are not in actual prayerful and faithful relationship with God. Vought responded, Muslims do not simply have a deficient theology. They do not know God because they have rejected Jesus Christ, his son, and they stand condemned place at a private Christian school. But now you see, this is brought out into the public square, where Russell Vaught is seated before some senators 
who are now privy to what he has written. And so Senator Bernie Sanders grills Vaught this past week on the quote, In my view, the statement made by Mr. Vaught is indefensible, said Sanders. It is hateful. It is Islamophobic. It is an insult to over a billion Muslims throughout the world. This country, since its inception, has struggled, sometimes with great pain, to overcome discrimination of all forms. We must not go backwards. So during the questioning, the senator from Vermont read the response that Vaught had given to this professor and then asked, do you believe that your response is Islamophobic? Vaught responded that he did not, that he was a Christian who based his principles on his faith and that the statement was made in defense of Wheaton College's statement of faith about the centrality of Jesus Christ for salvation. But Vaught could not finish responding. The Gospel Coalition website posts the interview Staying Saunders cut him off, asked whether Muslims stand condemned. Vaught reiterated that he was a Christian, whereupon Saunders interrupted him again to ask if Jews stand condemned. For the third time, Vaught pointed out that he was a Christian, and once again Saunders interrupted the nominee's answer, and Saunders began to say, I understand you're a Christian, but this country is made up of people who are not just Christians. I understand that Christianity is the majority religion, but there are other people who have different religions in this country and around the world, and in your judgment, do you think that people who are not Christians are going to be condemned? Ten seconds into his answer, Saunders interrupted Vaught once again to ask if the statement, they do not know God, is respectful of other religions. And after answering, Saunders said, I would simply say, Mr. Chairman, that this nominee is really not someone who is what this country is supposed to be about. Equal toleration of truth claims is not equivalent to the equal validity of truth claims. Let me say it again. Equal toleration of truth claims is not synonymous equivalent to the equal validity of truth claims. And so we live in this pluralistic culture, and so there are competing spiritualities. And how does one then take the statement, I am the way, the truth, the life, no one comes to the Father but through me, and work that out? particularly when there is a statement made in Islam, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is God's prophet. And then the Apostle John anticipates that by stating, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. So now the believers got to be equipped through standardized testing to discern a true prophet, from a false prophet, true spirituality, as Francis Schaeffer wrote, versus false spirituality, not based upon your claims, based upon Christ's claims. Raise the bar to the highest level where God the Father 
God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, have standardized the test. This distinguishes then between personal preferences and a higher statement about God's revealed truths, which needs to be distinguished in a pluralistic culture such as ours. All of this having direct bearing, you see. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Christians, don't get gullible. Just because somebody Christ- claims to be a Christian does not mean that that person's a Christian. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. Use a standardized test, God's word, to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world, and the Apostle John would have had firsthand experience with that with Peter in the setting of Samaria. By this you know. Now you're into verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Here comes something of highest significance I don't want us to miss. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Hit the pause button there. Read it slowly. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. A couple of observations. We've got it still up on the screen. Notice that it does not read, he was born. It talks about the fact that Jesus Christ has come. Which means then he was living before Bethlehem. The only time in which Jesus Christ refers to himself as having been born was when he stood before Pontius Pilate, and he himself was before some kind of judiciary board committee, so to speak. So he had to use terminology that related well to the setting in which he was in. He was brilliant. But notice the Apostle John here, using this wording, He's assuming you understand that Jesus Christ lived before Bethlehem, second member of the Trinity. He's eternal. By this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses. Here's the confession. That Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now I want you to underline that phrase, has come in the flesh. And I want you to see what's here. It doesn't say came in the flesh, does it? Nope. It reads has come in the flesh. If this were a Greek New Testament class, and I had my students with me, what I want to draw out for them is that this is what is known as a perfect tense verb, meaning it has a past tense element with present tense ramifications. To put it another way, Jesus came in the flesh and still is in the flesh. Has come. Doesn't read came. Reads has come. What that presumes then is a resurrection. He died. But if he is still in the flesh... That means three days later, he was raised from the dead. 
It does not read he came. It reads, as you see it here, has come in the flesh. In other words, he came in the flesh and still is in the flesh is a past tense event with present tense ramifications for you and for me. He's alive. And so the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me now has given you the standardized test to evaluate what's going on in this world anyways. So you look at that, and that becomes your confession, and now you contrast that with what is stated next in verse 3. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus, take into account all that we've just said, is not from God. This is his conclusion. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. The spirit of the Antichrist. And he's saying, people, you need to be aware. You need to have eyesight, you need to have insight, you need to have foresight, and you've got standardized testing to measure what's going on around you. And you've got to follow what has already been stated about what's coming your way. Joseph Stalin should have considered what was coming his way. June 22, 1941, three million German troops surged into Russia. Massive attack. Joseph Stalin had been adequately and repeatedly warned it was going to happen, but refused to believe that Germany, World War II time, was going to attack. They had a non-aggression pact. But you see, it shouldn't have come to any, as any surprise. Because 15 years earlier, in his second volume of Mein Kampf, Adolf Hitler had talked about expanding eastward. And this was part of his plan. It had been written in advance. But Stalin didn't believe. Now, what the Apostle John is saying here is that if this has been written in advance, will you believe? This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and now is in the world already. He pulls that together for you, pulls that together for me, and now what we find here is that there are competing confessions in the culture. Should they all be treated equally? Equal toleration does not mean equal validity. We work this through as a congregation based upon the word of God. Standardized testing in matters of testing examine the confessions made about God out there. Verses 1 through 3, this requires good parenting. You're single, you've got to be able to process how you're going to relate to people in the workplace, the marketplace, the schools, and so on in light of this. And once you've worked through one through three, here then is your second test exam, that in matters of testing, examine the contrasts made by God. Now, once you find out what people are saying about God, you better find out what God is saying about people. This comes from God. Note the contrast. 
he begins little children. Favorite phrase used in that upper room as Jesus described his disciples. Little children. But now what comes next is in the emphatic position. You. He's speaking to believers at this point. You are from God. What kind of believer? A believer who has put his faith and trust, her faith and trust, in the one who died for our sins and on the third day was raised from the dead. Little children, you are from God. And now one of those favorite verses, phrases, stand out. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Competing spiritualities. But there is one who is supreme. John Payton. John Payton was a missionary in the South Sea Islands. Often lived in danger. Worked among hostile people. Never heard the gospel. And at one time, there were three witch doctors, his biographer tells us, claiming to have the power to cause death. Publicly declared their intentions to kill Peyton with their sorcery before the next Sunday. To carry out their threat, they said they needed some food he had partially eaten. Peyton asked for three plums. He took a bite out of each and then gave them to the men who were plotting his death. And on Sunday, the missionary entered the village with a smile on his face, a spring in his step. The people looked at each other in amazement, thinking it could not possibly be Peyton. Their sacred men admitted that they had tried by all their incantations to kill him, and when asked why they had failed, they replied that the missionary was a sacred man like themselves, but that his God was stronger than theirs, and from then on, Peyton's influence grew, and soon he had the joy of leading some of the villagers to the Lord. And he was simply evidence of verse 4. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now, God is setting up the contrast. You have processed the confessions that are out there in the public square. Now, God sets up the contrast for you to manage and to decipher the confessions. So you bring it home. He gets practical in 5 and 6. They, they are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. Now, it can sound very logical what is being said by someone who is opposed to Jesus Christ. As long as you accept their presupposition their worldview, their belief. They can build a logical argument based upon a false assumption. You've got to go back to the source. Where is this coming from? Is this from God or is this not from God? You use standardized testing. Now what he's saying here is you've got to be able to determine origin evaluations, but wanting a sense of how I got to where I am based upon where things were. People want to have an understanding of how did I get to where I am based upon where things were, and they want to start tracking. Use this now, because people need standardized testing to figure out their source of origin. 
Now what the Apostle John is doing here is he's helping you determine the source of origin found in these claims, these confessions. And he says, they are from the world. Therefore they speak from the world. The world listens to them. Flip it. In verse 6, the we is once again in the emphatic position. We are from God. Mark what comes next. Whoever knows God listens to us. He's referring to the apostolic authority at this point. John, Peter, the likes. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. The word of God. Here's the voice, and the voice needs to be heard. In December, the women's ministry here had a brunch, as they generally do, gathered together, hear a gifted speaker. I found out that late in the week she had lost her voice. So we began to pray for her. I emailed her, and I sent her this story. When Dr. John Stott was speaking in Sydney, Australia in 1958, he began having trouble with his voice. And before the final Sunday evening service, when thousands of people were attending, Dr. Stott whispered his request to the mission committee chairman there that this mission committee chairman read the thorn in the flesh passage from 2 Corinthians 12 and pray over Dr. Stott. After the reading, the chairman prayed for Stott, and when the time came for Stott to speak, he whispered the gospel through the microphone in a monotone. His biographer tells us he couldn't modulate his voice, he couldn't vary his manner. But at the end, Stott gave a clear, basic instruction on how to come to Christ. And there was this incredibly large response. And whenever Dr. Stott returned to Australia, inevitably, someone would come up to him and say, do you remember that final service of 1958 in the University Great Hall when you lost your voice? I was listening. I came to Christ that night. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And then he hammers the point home. He takes the confessions out there in the pluralistic culture, and he sets up the contrast that has been given to us by God, from God. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error, which means then that a believer knows both, not one to the exclusion of the other, but has such a powerful, strong, well-constructed worldview. He can recognize truth. She can recognize truth. He can recognize error. She can recognize error. And this is all based upon the standardization of the scriptures that God has given you, you see. 
where you consider the confessions that are out there. And then you set up the contrast that God has given. And based upon God's word, and guided by God's word, you live for your Lord, for his honor, and for his glory. Let's stand together. As the Apostle John wrote this to believers on how to be able to discern, to distinguish, how to contrast in this fallen, confused world, I pray that the people in all these services today, all of us, will have now a greater set of tools for testing, the ability to make distinctions, a spirit of discernment, knowing that there is both a spirit of truth and a spirit of error operative simultaneously in the culture. And we need your word to guide us in the midst of the confusion that seems to so impact so many. May we take people to the point when they realize that the one who came in Bethlehem is still alive today. Death, resurrection, Jesus Christ is Lord. And may people, as a result of the people that attend this church and love Jesus as Lord and Savior, when we are scattered, may we find ways to impact them with the truth of your word. Thank you now, Father, for this time together. We give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.